Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. And so teach us all now, and as I preach, may the words of my mouth And may the meditation of the hearts of all listening be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles again to our sermon text, Romans chapter 16. You can find this in your pew Bibles on page 950. <clears throat> so I read it earlier, I won't uh, reread it again, but we'll be looking at the text as we work our way through it this morning. So after 45 sermons over the course of about three years, we come to the end of our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been able to dig deep into this letter as Paul has expounded the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's made clear that God justifies the ungodly through faith alone in his Son. He sent his Son at just the right time, when we were his enemies, to give his life for both Jew and Gentile, to make us righteous in his sight. After laying out this doctrine of justification, Paul then showed forth the transforming power of the gospel. That Christ not only saves us from the guilt of sin, but he also delivers us from slavery to sin, so that we might walk in newness of life. We are also granted the spirit of adoption, making us sons of God. And though we groan in our present sufferings, they are nothing compared to the glory that we are looking forward to. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul explored in great detail what was considered at that time the problem, the problem of the Gentiles being welcomed in by expounding the doctrine of God's sovereign election, as well as his means of calling people to himself through that simple means of the preaching of the gospel. And we saw the last few chapters of the letter have transitioned from the indicative laying out what is to the imperative, what we ought to do, laying out how then shall we live in light of so glorious a salvation. That's a basic outline of the letter, all that we've seen. Now this morning we come to the final chapter and we see it is dominated by this long list of greetings. This list of names might remind you of the Old Testament genealogies. And at first glance, it may seem to you just about as interesting. But just like all scripture, it is breathed out by God and useful for training us in righteousness. And so we have several lessons to learn from our text this morning. We'll work through it in five sections this morning. So first we have the commendation to Phoebe. These first two verses are a letter within a letter, a letter of commendation for Paul's friend Phoebe. 
In the ancient world, whenever someone traveled to a new city, he would carry with him a letter of commendation, a letter to introduce him, to give testimony to his character, and to encourage mutual friends to show him hospitality. And that's exactly what we have here. So let's read again verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at St. Crier, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe hails from St. Crier, which was a seaport just eight miles from Corinth, where Paul was living when he wrote this letter. Since Paul had spent extended time in Corinth, it was likely he had gotten to know Phoebe quite well. And as he shares, she was a patron of many, including himself. She was likely an upper-class woman who used her wealth to support the church. This verse has caused some controversy because Paul says that Phoebe is a servant of the church using the Greek word diakonos, which can also be translated deacon. So on one hand, for those who are looking for biblical evidence supporting the ordination of female deacons, this, is, this verse would be a, a key text. And on the other hand, diakonos can simply mean servant, and all believers are called to be servants, both men and women. So without more context, there is nothing definitive here to prove the case for female deacons. For us as an OPC church, we rest our practice of male-only deacons on the overall teaching of Scripture, and especially the clear teaching of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Since Phoebe was traveling from close to Corinth, to Rome, it's quite likely that Phoebe was the one carrying this letter, although she certainly would have had others accompanying her on such a lengthy journey. And so Paul encourages the church to receive her, to show her hospitality, and to help her in whatever needs she might have. Second, we have greetings, Paul's greetings from uh, to the saints in Rome. And Paul's letter to Rome stands out from all his others by this long list of greetings here at the end. It seems quite likely that Paul mentions by name every believer he personally knew in Rome, 26 individuals, two families, and at least three home churches. It's quite impressive the number of people he knew and had even worked alongside in a church that he had never personally visited. At first glance, this list of names might not seem to be of great interest to you, the modern Bible reader. There is quite a bit that we can learn here. First of all, the majority of the names here are Gentiles, which is a fact I've stated several times throughout this sermon series. The fact that the church in Rome was a majority Gentile church. Second, there were different naming conventions between wealthy Romans and those who would be slaves or freedmen. And an analysis of this list indicates the majority of the names here are slaves or freedmen. That is, former slaves who had either purchased or been given their freedom. However, some of these are serving in wealthy or important households. And so we can see that the gospel is reaching to all strata of society. I won't comment on every name in this list this morning, and there are some names here that we don't really know much about. But I do want to highlight several of the names. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul first sends greetings to his longtime co-workers, Prisca, also known as Priscilla, and Aquila. He first met this husband and wife team in Corinth 
on his second missionary journey because they had been ejected from Rome by the decree of Emperor Claudius. But by this point, as Paul is writing this letter, they had evidently returned to Rome. They shared in common Paul's trade of tent making. And so they had worked together in tent making for a time. They had been instrumental in bringing Apollos to a better understanding of the gospel. And they had ministered alongside Paul in Ephesus. Paul says they had risked their necks to save his life. And while we don't know for sure when this happened, one possible time was during the riot in Ephesus recorded in Acts 19. Paul also greets the church in their home, showing that they were wealthy enough to have a large enough home to host a house church. Paul may mention Prisca and Aquila first because they were leaders in the Roman church who could then carry greetings to the rest of the house churches. And alongside of that, they would read this whole letter to each house church in turn. Next, Paul greets Eponidas, who is described as the first convert to Christ in Asia. It's not clear here if he was led to Christ by Paul or perhaps even by Prisca and Aquila. But either way, being the first convert was a distinction worthy of remembrance. Next, I want to highlight several women that Paul greets. Mary in verse 6, Tryphena and Tryphosa, uh, and Persis in verse 12. Paul commends all these women for their hard work in the service of the church. In fact, of the 26 names in the section, nine of them, more than a third, are women. It certainly isn't an argument for female elders or female deacons, but it does show us how we ought to appreciate the important role that women play in serving in the church from Paul's day all the way up to today. Then we have another husband and wife team in verse 7, Andronicus and Junia. They have Greek names, but Paul says they are fellow Jews and that they were even imprisoned alongside him at one point. They were also well known to the apostles. They were in Christ even before Paul. While we don't know anything else about this couple than what's written right here, they must have done some significant ministry in Judea earlier, and they were now continuing to serve Christ in the church in Rome. Then notice verse 10b. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Here we see Paul greeting the household of Aristobulus, although possibly not Aristobulus himself. This Aristobulus may be identified with the brother of King Herod Agrippa I, and it's known that this Aristobulus had already died, but Paul could still greet his household. This identification is strengthened by verse 11a, greet my kinsman Herodian. This is a name that would be given to a freedman in Herod's household. And Herodian may have been serving in the household of Herod's brother, Aristobulus. Then we have verse 11b, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Narcissus was a well-known freedman who served Emperor Claudius. And so he would have been in the very highest echelons of Roman society. While Narcissus himself probably wasn't a believer, Paul is greeting those in his family who are in the Lord. So from verse 10b through 11, we see Paul greeting Christians who were most likely servants and slaves, but who were placed in important households. Then in verse 13, Paul greets Rufus and his mother. This Rufus may be the son of Simon of Cyrene, who helped to 
carry the cross of Christ. As the Gospel of Mark says that Simon had sons named Alexander and Rufus. Paul also greets Rufus's mother, saying she had been a mother to him as well, likely because he had received some gracious hospitality at her hands. And verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, scholars believe this is another family who hosted a house church. Philologus and Julia, a husband and wife with their son Nereus, his unnamed sister, and perhaps another son, Olympus, and those meeting in their house. After greeting everyone Paul knows in in, uh, Rome, he encourages them in verse 16 to greet one another with a holy kiss. The kiss was a common form of greeting in the ancient world, especially common among the Jews. A holy kiss makes clear there's nothing sexual about it, It is something shared between brothers and sisters in Christ. While greeting with a kiss is less common in our culture today, of course, we can substitute a holy handshake, a holy hug to greet our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the point is not the kiss, but to physically demonstrate the warmth of our love for one another. Paul also passes along greetings from all the other churches in Christ. Now, as we read this Long list of greetings, some difficult names to pronounce. What should strike you is just how well-connected Paul is to a church that he had never visited. This was a man who loved people because he loved Christ and he loved Christ's church. Even though he couldn't visit them yet, he wants them to know his love. And he wants them to know his prayers are for them. Third, we have a warning a promise, and a blessing. Paul will return to greetings in verse 21, but first he inserts a section that is dominated by a warning about false teachers. It may have been the mention of the greeting from other churches that leads Paul to write this section. So far in this letter, Paul has not said anything about false teachers. And so it seems likely that, as far as Paul knows, no false teachers had yet arrived in Rome. It might have been the greeting or, sorry, uh, repeating myself. So that Paul knows that these false teachers are sure to soon arrive at Rome, and he wants them to, to get their guards up. So verse seven he, 17, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Paul says they are to be on guard for the coming of these false teachers who will not only cause divisions but will create obstacles, literally stumbling blocks, by teachings that are contrary to what they have been taught. And as you know from Paul's letter to the Galatians, any gospel that departs from the apostolic gospel is no gospel at all. It cannot save. The response to these teachers is very simple. They are to avoid them. Don't Listen to them, not for an instant. And verse 18, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul describes them as self-serving rather than serving Christ. They are seeking their own pleasure rather than building up Christ's body. However, they are particularly dangerous because they can be persuasive. And their smooth talk through their smooth talk and their flattery. 
so they can deceive the naive and lead them astray. And that's why it's so necessary for the Romans to be warned, to be on their guard ahead of time. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul begins here by commending the Romans upon their obedience. And he says he wants them to be both wise concerning what is good and innocent concerning what is evil. I hear this can be a little bit confusing at first. It helps to recognize the word innocent here is the same Greek word that was translated naive in the previous verse. So there is a little bit of danger in being innocent if it is not combined with wisdom concerning what is good. Because the false teachers take advantage of the innocent and the untaught. Paul wrote something similar in 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He also seems to be drawing on Christ's instruction here. Matthew 10.16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So Paul wants the Romans to seek wisdom and good works to avoid evil. And yet the basic solution to the problem of the false teachers is exactly what he said earlier, to simply avoid them, give them no quarter. And in verse 20a, we have a promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This promise of God's victory over Satan seems to be placed here because the false teachers are up to Satan's business in attacking the church. It also draws on the language of what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Christ has won a definitive victory over Satan on the cross. But as you know, Satan is not yet fully subdued. He still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And yet the day will soon come when Christ will return and will put all his enemies under his feet, and when his victory over Satan will be complete. This promise is still awaiting its fulfillment, but as Paul writes, it will soon be fulfilled. Paul then closes this section with a short blessing in verse 20b. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Having given a warning a promise and a blessing, Paul returns to a second section of greetings, this time from his fellow workers in Corinth. First, he sends greetings from Timothy, who was probably his closest ministry associate. Timothy had joined Paul's ministry at the beginning of his second missionary journey, as recorded in Acts 16, and then he served alongside him for the rest of that journey. He was also with Paul for much of his third missionary journey. And as you know, Paul later wrote two letters to instruct Timothy concerning his future ministry. Paul then lists three Jewish kinsmen, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. And verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Here we learn that Paul used a scribe to write this letter as Paul dictated it aloud, which was his common practice. Now, usually, The scribe's name isn't mentioned. We only know that Paul used the scribe because he writes a greeting in his own hand 
at the end of a letter. But here, Tertius has the opportunity to write a few words of his own, personally greeting the Christians in Rome. And in verse 23, Paul gives a greeting from Gaius, his host, and the host of a house church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul lists Gaius as one of the few people he had baptized in Corinth. Paul also sends greetings from Erastus, the city treasurer, and his brother, Cordus. We see that Paul had a solid team around him, supporting him as he wrote this letter from Corinth. Even though Paul never married, he was never a lone ranger in ministry. Even as he ministered to others, we see how much he depended on others who ministered to his needs. He truly believed what he wrote about the church being a body with many members, each with different abilities complementing each other, serving one another. Fifth and finally this morning, we come to the closing doxology. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul concludes this letter with a grand doxology, the longest of all his letters. Here he ascribes all glory to God alone through Jesus Christ. As we look at this doxology, we'll notice how Paul draws on many of the key themes that he has developed throughout his letter. He opens by describing God as the one who is able to strengthen and establish you. He does this through the gospel, through the preaching of Jesus Christ, the very message that has been central to Paul's letter. That's one reason why Paul wrote this letter, to strengthen the church in Rome so that they could stand fast and as we just saw, so that they wouldn't be deceived by any false teachers that came their way. Next, he describes how the gospel has been revealed according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. This takes us back to Paul's explanation of the revelation of the righteousness of God back in chapters 1 through 3. There he said this was a mystery that previously had been veiled. And although the prophets bore witness to it, it it was veiled, but now it has been revealed. It has been thrown wide open. It's made known through Jesus Christ in the gospel. The good news that we are justified by through faith alone in Christ alone. And that this good news is for both Jew and Gentile, all who put their trust in. In Jesus Christ, it is truly good news. Next, Paul says, this is according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul is saying here the gospel was revealed at the time and in the way it was because God himself commanded it. And his purpose was to call men to that saving faith which produces obedience to God even though he's made abundantly clear that salvation is through faith and not by works. The end result is obedience, the obedience of faith. 
And Paul brings this doxology, this grand doxology, to a conclusion in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And in speaking of the wise God, Paul is echoing the doxology, if you'll recall, from chapter 11, which exalted the wisdom of God. There he wrote, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As he exalts God for his unique wisdom, and he ascribes glory to him forevermore through Jesus, his son. And the final, the final word in the letter is a word of affirmation. So let it be. Amen. It's been a wonderful three years for me to study this book, to bring my, the results of my studies to you in this series of sermons. I hope you have grown in Christ through this series as I have. This morning as we've looked at the greetings, we've seen a very practical expression of love within the body of Christ. There's no doubt that Paul had a a brilliant theological mind, that he understood the gospel, that he understood how to apply the gospel to the Christian life. But I would say that there's no way he would have been as successful in ministry as he was if he didn't love people the way that he did. And that's what we see here in these greetings. We see a love for people. He could never have done it alone. He could never have done it without love. And isn't that what we see all throughout this letter? Isn't that what we saw all throughout the letter of 1 John? The importance of that Jesus placed on love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It was true for Paul and the same holds true today. You cannot live the Christian life alone. We need one another. One member of the body cannot function well, separated from the rest of it. It cannot even survive. And that's why we need to be surrounded by Christ's church, embedded in its life, keeping our membership vows to love and care for one another. As we do this, we'll also be able to keep our eyes open for any false teaching that might sneak its way into the church to lead any astray, especially those who are young and untaught. As we've seen this morning, the goal of this all, the final end, what this whole letter is pointing towards it's all to the glory of God the God who is able to strengthen you through the gospel he will be glorified through his son Jesus Christ forevermore amen let's pray our great God and our heavenly father we do give you thanks for this wonderful letter that we've had the great privilege of studying through these last three years. It's been so rich. It's been so deep. We know that every word of yours is given for our 
uh, edification, for our teaching, our training in righteousness. And so we thank you for the study this morning. We do pray, Lord, that you would teach us to love one another, even as Christ has loved us, that you would that you would help us to keep an eye open, to keep a guard out for any false teaching, anything that departs from the very word that you have given us, and that we would live all of our lives, not for ourselves, but seeking your glory above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.